When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Thursday morning, uh, the 3rd of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Discussions are about to get underway on the closure of the A&E in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. This is according uh, to Padder Tobin, who's uh, the founder and leader of AIM2 and a TD for Mead West. He joins us now together with Thomas Byrne, who's a Fianna Fáil TD for Mead East and the Minister for European Affairs. And you're both very welcome to the programme. Pater Tobin, what's going on? Well, just in the last couple of days, uh, all the TDs in the constituency have received an email from the Minister for Health. Um, and the, in the email reads uh, that the Minister paused the closure of the A&E uh, and now he wants to talk to the elected representatives in the area. Uh, he wants to bring uh, what he calls his medical experts into a room and he wants us to provide questions to him so that they can be answered on the day to alleviate any fears that people may have around the closure of the A&E. And as people know, uh, it is policy of the government to close the A&E in Navan. Uh, it is written in the uh, in, in government policies, hardwired there. Um, we've asked for a number of years for the government to delete uh, any references to the closure of the A&E. They refused. And then just in autumn last, um, the HSC went to senior management within the uh, the hospital and staff and told them to start to prepare for the closure of the A and E in Navan. Now, this that this is on the agenda at all is absolutely a, a criminal offence, if you ask me, because we have just come a couple of weeks ago from a okay. country that was mm. in semi semi lockdown. Okay, we can come up to all of that in a, a moment. But as far as you're concerned, you're being invited to meet with the minister to discuss how the A and E is going to close. Yes, the sentence used was that there's a pause in the closure, that's the minister's sentence, and to discuss uh, the process for, for which that happens. And uh, and I just think that it's unbelievable that that's on the agenda at okay. all. Okay, well, let's speak to the minister. Minister, what do you know about this? Well, I don't know anything about the email that Padder has just read out because it's not the email that was sent to TDs yesterday. 
So if Paddock could actually read out what was sent to him rather than make stuff up, which is what he's done, there's nothing about the closure of the A&E in this email. He's read it out as if it says that the minister wants to sort of prepare for the closure. I think he should read out exactly what the email says rather than give a completely misleading impression. Unless he got a different email than I got, but it's just, that's certainly not the email that was sent to the other TDs in the two constituencies. Okay, Patrick Tobin. But, but let, let him come back. And, you know, um, you no, may, I, I mean, you're making a valid point. Uh, is it the same email? I suppose is the question. The, the email refers to a pause in the government's plan for Navin, and everybody knows at this stage. And you know, any were you paraphrasing the email? In other words, I am. Par- I okay. don't have the email in front of me. I'm on, right. on the okay. way to work well, at the okay. moment. Okay. The, the email indicates, and the word there is pause. Pause on what then, Thomas? Sorry. Patter, Patter just read out the email as if he had it in front of him with the word closure of the A&E. It was like it was a quotation mark. So we now, I, I didn't say I was quoting it at all, Thomas. I, I paraphrased the, the email, but the word pause well, the isn't there. Let the listeners Thomas. judge themselves. Okay. Um, the word closure is not in the email, Patter. You've used that word three or four times. Okay, M- Minister, I take it you have the email in front of, us, yeah, in front of you. Maybe you'd uh, let us know what it says. I'll read, I'll read it out exactly. Yep. Okay. I'll forward it directly into your studio. Great, okay. Because that's probably the easiest way, rather than misinterpretation, which is a key problem uh, in this whole issue. Um, we find, because Pallard will be in email. You want to read it out, Thomas? Well, I've just, I've just sent it on to Michael Reid, and he can read it out to the listeners himself. I think that's probably the best thing to do, and the listeners can judge themselves. But the fact is, what is this email about? If you remember last October... I was castigated because a meeting with the Minister for Health didn't take place. So Padder was on the radio giving out, Sinn Féin were on the radio giving out. This meeting is now taking place, and all that email is doing is inviting Padder and me and every other TD to this meeting. And now Padder's on giving out again. So, Paddy, you can't have it both ways. You're giving what, what is it? Okay, well, let's. Okay, I, I've, I, I've, I've received the email. <laughs> this is very odd, uh, I'm sure, for people listening. But uh, thank you. Uh, I've just received your email. And uh, on your request, Minister, I'll read it out. I think uh, you asked that I do that as well, uh, Peter Toby. And so it says I, I refer to the HSE's planned engagement with Oroctus members in relation to the proposed transition of Navin to a Model 2 hospital in line with uh, the government decision on the smaller hospitals framework. As you know, no, the Minister has requested the HSE to pause on the plans for this transition pending engagement with the Rochdus members on behalf of the local community. It is intended to reschedule this meeting shortly. In order to ensure the meeting is as useful as possible, the Minister considers it would be very helpful if you would outline your questions and concerns in advance. This will help ensure that people with the necessary clinical and operational expertise and knowledge are present so that the issues can be fully explored. Please email me by return, blah de blah de blah Of course, should further questions arise on the day which had not been signalled in advance, they will be addressed to the greatest extent possible. Uh, Thomas Byrne, uh, what does it mean when it says a Model 2 hospital? Well, that's obviously what's referring to what's been policy in the HSE since about 2013. Yes, which would mean that a minor injuries unit would replace the emergency department. That's been on the cards. That's been on the cards (laughs) forever. Forever. Since 2013, the Smaller Hospitals Framework document, which this email also refers to. Uh, Padre Tobin. And it also refers to the Minister has caused these plans as well. Padre Tobin is completely correct in his interpretation of what's being said here, is he not? Well, sorry, if you heard what Pallet had been read out, he read out that this is for preparing for the closure of it. It's not. This is the meeting that he came on your show giving out that it didn't happen in October. Now he's on today giving out that it is happening. So you can't have it both ways. What we want to do 
is have accurate information for the people of County Meath. Okay. Michael, quite frankly, Michael, I'd be very think, happy if you were at that meeting along with all the other local media. No difficulty with that whatsoever, and I'll push for that. Okay, Peter Toby. I, I just think that the people of Meath are going to be so frustrated at Thomas yet again in, in this situation. Even the email that he sent to yourself basically says that the government's plan is to close the A&E in Navin. Right. That's that. There's no. It's the way no, I. It's it's the way I understand it. I, I no mean, people. Pe- it's, pe- it's, people listen. You can't, you can't transition to a level two hospital unless that A and E closes. Let's okay? use a let's use a specific example that people can understand uh, because uh, it may be argued uh, that uh, uh, emergency treatment was not closed in Dundalk in the Loud County Hospital, uh, but what happened there was the emergency uh, department uh, transitioned to a minor injuries unit. Uh, and that is exactly what this email is saying. Uh, and people uh, may say, uh, you, um, you might argue that there's still emergency services there, but as far as we're concerned, you closed the A&D. And, and, and the frustrating thing about this is that Thomas actually stood on a trailer in, in Navin uh, less than 10 years ago in front of 10,000 people to fight against this transition. He said he, was, he opposed it and would do everything he could in his political office to oppose it. And here we are, that we have... It's, the fact that it's actually on the agenda at all isn't—it's it, absolutely shocking. Mm. Because what it means is that the population of two hundred thousand people in Meath uh, will—if if this plan goes ahead and it's a paused plan—we understand that. If it goes ahead, that we we lose a twenty-four hour accident emergency in our own community. Yeah, and that was the 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 fear that was the fear exactly the fear in Dundalk, and it's working very well in Dundalk, by the way. So it might not be the worst thing in the world. Now I don't know. People listening will know. I just got this email because you sent it on to me, Minister. Maybe I'm not interpreting it correctly. It is working well in Dundalk. Is that what's being proposed for Navan? No, I mean, we all know what happened last summer. The HSE started making plans without really reference to anybody in the political system uh, for moving to the, in line with what's been on the cards for years and years and years. Minister Donnelly came along at, at my request, at Shane Castle's request, at Damien English, Helen McAfee's request, that this be paused. He's done that. A meeting, and you asked me, Michael, why were opposition TDs not at a meeting with the minister before? Mm. I got that question. So they were giving out that this meeting wasn't happening. This meeting is now happening. Paddler's going to be able to win there. I hope uh, can, come here, there. can I just say, like, first of all, we appreciate that there's a meeting happening. I think everybody knows there's a meeting happening. But the, but the fact, Thomas, that it's on the agenda at all is absolutely wrong, is what we're saying. The fact that we came, we are coming out of COVID, where we had, you know, hundreds of people in hospital and lots of people in, in ICU, that we had to close down uh, uh, services in, in hospitals right across the country because of the pressure that was put on the health service. And the fact that your government is talking about closing ICU beds uh, in, the, in, in the near future in Navin is just unbelievable to most people. Well, let the Minister come on back on that. We're talking about a Model 2 hospital. Would a Model 2 hospital have ICU beds, Minister? Look, and, and to be honest, that's one of the questions I'll have, because... It I'm won't. It won't. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not entirely clear. Nobody will, nobody will send out a list, and this is part of the problem at the moment with Malvin, because Patter talks to 100,000 people. The reality is, probably a majority of them already go to other hospitals, and the constant negativity about Navin mm. Hospital, that particularly every time there's an email or anything at all, Paddles out for this has gone back over 10 years. They do, and it's Patters, not considered Patters to be safe to treat people in Navin, and that is why... That, they're going elsewhere. That's, yep. that's what's been happening for 10 years. Well, Tom, mm. Thomas is making an argument for people going to other hospitals. I'm not. I'm making an argement that we actually have an improved, safer service in Meath. 
We had a massive flood in Tower Mines in, in, in recent times. We actually had seven people brought to Navan A&E because of a fire in Tower Mines just in, in, in the last two months. And it is, it is absolutely wrong, I think, that a, you, you have a politician in the form of a minister, on, in Thomas Byrne, who says he doesn't know whether or not an ICU bed will exist in Navan when the, the transition to level two happens. He is paid to know that. His responsibility, his, his reason for being a minister in Mead is to protect the, the people in Mead and the most important infrastructure in Mead is the hospital. And like here we are, six months down the road since the last effort that the government made to close this, and Thomas is coming on the radio saying he doesn't know whether there'll be an ICU bed in Navan or not. We cannot go into another wave of COVID in this country with less ICU beds than we had uh, in, 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 in December. We need to strengthen the, the hospital services in, in this country. Well, the argument will be made that this will strengthen the hospital services, that more some services will come out of Navan and more will go in. It'll be the same argument that has been made with all of these other smaller hospitals. Very quick point. There's there's been studies done in Britain uh, which say that if a person's waiting for more than five hours in an A&E, their health uh, outcomes are less. Right now, people are staying 11 hours in A&E in in Drogheda waiting for services. The staff in Connolly Hospital were actually out in protest before Christmas Mm -hmm. because of the conditions that they're working in. The Irish Association for for, uh, Emergency Medicine say that approximately 350 people are dying a year because of ED overcrowding Mm. because we're already overcrowded before we well, let's not forget that you're talking about a whole lot of people and that is why they take this approach because if you go to an emergency department with a, a broken arm, you're in there with the stroke patient, the heart attack patient, uh, the patient uh, whose bowel has burst uh, and these very serious emergencies, so they're prioritised over you. So that's why you wait a very long time because you're not seen as a priority in relation to those patients. But if you have a minor injuries unit that you can go to, such as is the case in Dundalk, you could be in and out in less than a half hour. Uh, Minister, it is true to say that that's what a Model 2 hospital is, that you would have a minor injuries unit to deal with those sorts of things. The point I'm I'm making is that we don't really have really any of the information. And I'm saying this as a government minister. We've asked the HSE for clarity in relation to capacity of Drogheda, capacity of Blanchestown, all those issues that Padder has raised. And I haven't got clarity. And certainly, if this were to happen next week, I certainly would not be supporting it because I'm absolutely not satisfied. And the capacity is there elsewhere. I want to be but, clear about that. But, but do you agree that that's what that means? That if, it, if the transition is to a Model 2 well, hospital, do you agree, Minister, that record. means... That's, that's on the record for... OK, because I, I think you were saying otherwise a few moments ago with respect to well, you, no, Minister. But the point, sorry, the point I was making was really is that I'm not entirely clear what the HSC are planning at all. That's the point. I know what a level 2 hospital is, but I'm not entirely clear. And Pather isn't clear either. But every time, every time something happens, Pather's straight out, straight out saying, oh, it's closing. And this is going on no. for more than 10 years. And every time you do that, Father, someone else okay. going somewhere else. That's the reality. Well, no, no, no. For, for, can, I, can I come back? First of all, just, it's... There's two things in, in this email. Model 2 hospital sticks out like a sore thumb and the second thing that sticks out is smaller hospitals framework uh, which outlines what a a Model 2 hospital would be which is that there would be no ICU and that there would be no emergency department that there would be a minor injuries unit instead. Pater Tobin. Yeah, listen, everybody in the region that's looking at this knows what's happened, except, unfortunately, the ministers that are in the government. I have spoken to clinical experts and senior clinicians in the hospitals around Navan. They say 
that if Navin loses this A&E, as is planned by the government, it will be a disaster for uh, patients both in Mead and in the surrounding hospitals, that this is actually a threat to health. And Thomas talks about the history of the Save Navin Hospital campaign. We, will, we are proud of the work that we have done over the last 10 years. There were nine hospitals that were identified by HICWA for their A&Es to be closed. Navin is the last A&E of that nine open. Okay. For two reasons. We might ask you in time, Peter Tobin, to name those experts and consultants and so on because yes, there's a, a body of people who would dis- there's a body of people uh, and professionals uh, and professional bodies that would disagree with you. I think the IHCA uh, would support this way of uh, uh, hospitals being configured. I, 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 first of all, the conversations that I've had with people are off the record conversations. But I tell you this: if Thomas goes to draw the hospital and speaks to senior clinicians there, I can guarantee him that the majority of them will say that they are against the closure of the A and E in Avon. I can guarantee him. Oh, okay. I've, I've spoken to doctors who are opposed to it, absolutely. But I've also spoken to doctors who are in favour of it. And the one, I mean, I know Pat from the lab, I don't know whether Pat has had a chance to ring get Mr. Jerry McAtee since we last were on the radio, because he hadn't at that point. But there's, there's certainly different views. But that's the whole point of this particular meeting that Pat was giving out that didn't take place last October. It's now happening. The opportunity is there. And I hope, Michael, you have the opportunity as well, and other journalists in the region, to listen to what they're saying. That's what I'm looking for, so that you can hear firsthand and we can hear as well, and we can have the questions answered, but quite frankly, and I'll agree with this to some extent, Pater, the questions that I've asked so far have not been answered in any way satisfactorily for me. Well, you know, I, I welcome the change in tone uh, of the Minister here, but what I will ask for the Minister to do is um, to look at the GP services in Mead, for example, uh, where many people can't get GPs and that are overrun. I'd ask him to look at the any doctor on call uh, who's themselves gone on the records and said that there's no way that they will be able to handle the level of patients that would come their direction if the government look uh, to proceed with this particular closure. And I would also ask him to look at the fact that we have a hospital service where there's a million people already on waiting lists, yeah. where it is we are radically under capacity with regards to provision of health services in this country. That, you know, we had a situation 10 years ago where the government themselves said we needed 550 ICU beds, and yet at the end of the COVID crisis, we only had 300 ICU beds, which forced the country to lock down very severely over and over again. So the, any idea that anybody can make it an argument that closing ICU beds and accident an emergency in me... I think in fairness to the minister, but I think in fairness to the minister, uh, you're reiterating what he has already said. They're the type of obstacles, I think you've said, Minister, that you oh, see right. to a transition of this sort. Absolutely. But what I want, what I want is more services there. What I want is the best possible service. <coughs> if, you've got, if you've got, as family members of all of us have had, cancer services, you go to the, the hospital that deals with that on an expert basis. We had this debate over 10 years ago where certain cancer services were leaving in Navan and Drogheda. I stood for that because I felt this is the best. And no, literally nobody argues about that. Mm. Nobody. So are you open then to a, a plan to reconfigure the hospitals over well, not, a period of time? Not, not on the be- no, not on the basis of what I sort of know and don't know at the moment because I don't have, I don't have any reassurance uh, that Drogheda and Blanchestown could, could hold these things. But the reality is every single time there's rumours, there's pattern with a press release every single time mm. it's put in the hospital. This has gone on for 10 years. There's more and more people are voting with their feet and going elsewhere. And that's the reality. 
I think you've got to stop with the negative. Okay, but what about what, 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 just as an example, and I'm sure there's medics uh, who will be listening thinking it's not a, a very good example, but uh, from um, a layperson's point of view, just a, as an example, what if all of uh, the day surgery or, or day uh, outpatient appointments uh, and outpatient clinics and elective procedures moved out of Drogheda into Navan uh, and uh, then the emergency went to Drogheda? Uh, surely there'd be the capacity then in Drogheda, and that is the kind of approach, is it not, that well, they'd be talking about taking for something like this? No, well, I mean, all I, on, on that, all I can say for absolute definite, whatever happens here, there will be more and more day services in Navan. Mm. Not saying they're coming from Drogheda or Blanchetown or mm. anywhere else, but there will be more services and more procedures done in Navan. That's absolutely guaranteed. Well, can, can I just come in there for a second? I, I'm delighted that this conversation has completely changed from the one we had at the start. Because the one we had at the start were, was where the minister was actually saying that this is, you know, uh, it was all fluff, that it was not going to be closed, that the meeting is not discussion about it closed. And now at least the minister is, a, is admitting that there's a threat and admitting that, you know, that threat uh, is a danger to, to the people of Mead. I would ask that he would actually, you know, be stronger for me. In the same way that Charlie Flanagan made sure that the A&E in Port Leisure wasn't closed, that the ministers of Mead actually, rather than say, wait and see, let's talk to people about this, let's find out more information. Let's, you know, why don't the ministers actually say, look, do you know what, we're actually going to stand up for the people of Mead and make sure this doesn't happen but at all. But he just said it a moment ago, he said, as things stand, there's no possibility uh, in his mind of this happening successfully. Well, well, to be honest, every other conversation that I've heard the minister say, he has stated that he wants to wait and see what the medical profession says. Now, just before Christmas, for example, orthopaedic treatment in Navin was suspended. Why? Because our A&E was so busy. You know, general uh, surgery in Navin... Are you, are you not making the argument for closing it? No, what I'm making the argument uh, for I mean, more capacity. If, if people were being treated for emergency somewhere else that had the capacity, yeah, uh, then surely some of uh, those hip replacements where, where, Michael, there's a or knee replacements there. or whatever Michael, uh, people Michael, were... This, this, is point, this is the point. No, no, can, can, can I just get Navin, Because Navin this, is, this has been thrown around like confetti that in some way there's a, there's a miracle hospital lying 20 miles away from us. Where does the capacity exist? Okay, let the minister come back there. Well, sorry, I mean, if we go back to the National Cancer Strategy, that's the whole point, that you go a bit further, actually, to get the expertise. NAVIN has nationally recognised expertise in orthopaedics. It will be nationally recognised in terms of day procedures as well. There's no doubt about that. There's a huge number of things positively that's going on, and we never, ever hear from Palestine. Where does the capacity exist for cancer patients in this country? We have hundreds of thousands of people who have cancer uh, who are not getting uh, the diagnosis and the treatments uh, that that they're entitled to. We had last year 100,000 screenings cancelled by the government. The the, the question is, Thomas, where does the capacity exist? What I'm saying is that the capacity in Navin, in terms of overall, in terms of what it does, is going to be increasing and increasing and has been increasing. There's been investment put into that hospital in the last number of years, despite we never hear about that from you either. Um, a huge investment put in. That's going to be continued. There's going to be more people going through that hospital in the next few years. But like, let's engage with this meeting. You've looked for this meeting. You complained that you weren't uh, at a meeting that I was at previously. You complained when the meeting was postponed before Christmas. Okay. Let's all go for it. I think this meeting is going to take place in the next couple of weeks uh, by the looks of uh, things. Uh, so undoubtedly, we'll have much more discussion over that time period. But we leave it there for the moment. Thank you both very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. We were speaking with uh, the Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, who is a Fianna Fáil TD in Mead East. Also with us uh, this morning, uh, the leader of AIM2, Padre Tobin, who is a TD for Meath West. 
Michael Reed on, on LMFM. It's always a thorny issue. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments about Our Lady's Tommy in Navin says, why doesn't the government just come out and say categorically that it is not going to close the A&E in Navin either? They're going to close it or they're not going to close it. People deserve to know what is going on. Uh, another call to us uh, then about the hospital from Sarah, who's in Eastmead, and she says, a question for you, Michael. Where will the patients in Navin go if uh, they close the A&D. I don't know if you've been to the emergency in the Lourdes recently, but it is always so busy. The poor staff are run off their feet. They haven't the resource to take more patients. It's the same with the hospital in Blanchardstown, from what I hear. Thanks uh, for that, uh, Sarah. We'll take that as a comment rather than a question. Uh, somebody else in touch saying it'll be a sad day for Navin if uh, the hospital is downgraded under the Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael Green Party government. What about all of the commitments made to save the hospital's A&D from the local uh, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael TDs over the years. Who is going to be the best uh, certainly, who, who is this going to be best for, I beg your pardon? Certainly not the people of Meath who depend on the hospital says our caller. Uh, somebody else says Peter Tobin is wasting his breath. It's a done deal and Thomas Byrne knows it. It's happened to us in Dundalk. It'll be a 12-hour hard seat wait in Our Lady of Lourdes A&D for Meath people from now on. Uh, David Toomey in Drogheda says, Good morning, Michael. You, like Peter Tobin, has interpreted the Minister's email. Phrases such as pause, expert advice, collaboration, open discussion. I presume the intention is for all public reps to gather and voice their opinions. If Patter, as usual, wants to take up airtime, why doesn't he use valuable time to prepare, submit questions and enter discussions? The idea of a centre of excellence, the position of Louth is working well. If a Patter and public need clarification, here is the opportunity. Submit your questions. Of course, Patter will use this for electioneering. Thanks, David, uh, for that. I think uh, you make some very valid points, uh, but I think it's true to say when you talk about transitioning to a uh, Model 2 hospital under the smaller hospitals framework, that is black and white uh, textbook stuff for saying that that is going to be uh, one of the smaller hospitals, a Model 2 hospital, which means there will not be ICU, there will not be uh, emergency department, there will be a minor injuries unit where you'd go with a broken arm or whatever it is uh, that it is considered to be a minor injury in comparison to one of these great emergencies that we all hope never to have in our lives uh, but there would also be an awful lot of other services there, services that aren't there and you'd have the centre of excellence uh, as you rightly put it, uh, which uh, could be Drogheda or Blanchardstown or whatever uh, Thomas Byrne hasn't got a clue, says somebody else, Padder is right, says the same person, how can they have uh, the hospital in Navin if uh, the uh, A&D is closed and they're building of hun- hundreds of houses in the town, uh, how is that going to work out. Thank you indeed if you have been in touch. If you haven't been in touch and you want to talk to us about this or something else for that matter uh, you know where we are. We're waiting on your call. Michael Reed on LMFM. Are you old enough uh, to remember back a couple of weeks to when there was an emergency, a global pandemic, and we were all frightened out of our lives at the thoughts of catching coronavirus? Well, thankfully, it all ended a a couple of weeks ago, uh, and we can all go about our daily business now as if there's no threat to us. At least that's uh, what a, a lot of people think. But on the other hand, there's still a lot of people who think it's too much too soon and a lot of people still feeling very anxious. It is recognised that the removal of restrictions, while very welcome, will cause anxiety for some people. In particular, this may be the case for many people who are immunocompromised 
or more vulnerable to the severe effects of COVID-19. I wish to reassure those who may be anxious that the risks associated with COVID-19 are greatly reduced through vaccination and boosting, and that with appropriate caution, they can go about their daily lives. You can go about your daily life. Uh, that's uh, the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Houlihan. Uh, he was one of uh, the members of NEFIT, uh, along with Dr Roland Lynn and Professor Philip Nolan, who all became household names during the pandemic, who appeared before the Oireachtas Health Committee yesterday. Uh, now, they did say that the situation is an awful lot better and you can get back to normal and you can go about your daily lives as was the case before, maybe with some degree of caution. But that caution uh, should be for the reason that COVID uh, and the pandemic is not actually over as yet. At a societal level, the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted on the physical and mental health of many. It is important that people are assured that while the pandemic is not over, it is safe to return to the activities we all enjoy in terms of socialising, exercising, family, work and travel. CMO Dr Tony Hulhan. Let's speak once again to Dr Mary Scully, who's a GP with Abbey House Medical Centre in Navan. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Are you finding it hard to balance in your head the messages that are coming in relation to COVID now? Because there's still a lot of virus about and we're being told, on the other hand, not to be worried about it. Morning, Michael. Yes, I'm afraid I fall into the it's not gone away camp. Um, it certainly hasn't gone away. The numbers yesterday, I think, were 12,000 cases. 12,500, I think, 12, when you added it all up. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. 12, you know, this time last year, we've been announcing 12,500. We'd have been panic-stricken. But I suppose the difference this year is the vaccine. You know, the vaccine has made, uh, uh, you know, the COVID so much safer because... It's going to limit the severity of any disease you're going to get. So it has changed things. The vaccine has absolutely changed the landscape where COVID is concerned. But it has not gone away. Um, even this week, um, you know, where, you know, in, in my own practice, we have some staff out because they have caught COVID uh, in the last couple of weeks. And that's great, um, if you don't mind me saying, because I think there's a lot of people who have COVID who are going about their daily lives uh, as if there's nothing wrong with them and uh, aren't doing anything to protect other people. Yes, I know. And, and the trouble is that it can often be quite asymptomatic. I spoke to a patient yesterday who was going into hospital for a test and they did uh, an antigen test prior to going in and it was positive. So that's the problem with it. Mm. Is it because of the vaccines, you can be almost completely asymptomatic, but then, you know, I suppose you could be a little bit infectious as well. So, okay. so this virus has not gone away. And while it's not going to represent a huge threat for the most of us who are sort of a little bit younger, a little bit fitter, a little bit healthier, mm. and who are fully vaccinated... Um, you know, it is the elderly people with underlying diseases and the unvaccinated are probably still better off, you know, behaving with caution, mm. as Tony Holland says. OK, I think a lot of people would like to see the figures less than 12,500, but maybe 10,000 out of the 12,500 have no symptoms or just feel like they have a, a bit of a cold or something like that. Having said that, there's 630 people in hospital. Uh, but mm. the, good, the, the good side of that is uh, that a, a lot of people uh, in hospital went in uh, because uh, they had yeah, yeah. something else wrong with them. They had a COVID mm. test and uh, it was discovered that they had COVID. So uh, mm. maybe 6% 
600 out of the 630 are, are there for some other reason. But there's 65 people in ICU uh, yeah. and that is as a direct result of COVID and that's a, a lot of people. Uh, and the most worrying part of it all, uh, because I don't know, you talk about uh, us saying a couple of weeks ago we'd have been flabbergasted and very concerned if there was 12,500 cases. There were 92 deaths in the last week. That's about 13 people a day, every day over the last seven days. Well, I think those 92 deaths were not all in the last week. They were reported in in the last week, but mm. they didn't all occur. But that is always the case, isn't it? And yeah, I mean, we it look is, at, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah, but so they didn't all kind of just occur in the last week. They, they think they even go back as far as November. Mm. Fact. Mm. But, the, but, I mean, but I mean, I mean, I think the point remains. I mean, we've always been looking at uh, deaths that have uh, been uh, reported from weeks or months previously. But mm. I mean, you're talking about uh, when you break that 92 down, divided by seven, it works out at about 13 a, a day. There's mm. a, a lot of COVID. There's a lot of people in hospital, and there's a lot of deaths from COVID. Uh, is it really okay? Um, yeah, I mean, you, you know, I was very surprised when Michal Martin uh, there the week and a half ago just announced suddenly that all restrictions, bar a little bit of mask wearing, were all to be gone. It just seemed very sudden and uh, very unexpected. Um, and it sort of, I think, gave the signal that, yeah, COVID's all gone away and we're not even going to report the cases at the weekend. It's kind of going to be so grand now. Mm. You know, and people are taking that attitude. Oh, it's fine. We'll all go back to our normal lives. But, you know, it hasn't really gone away. And I think we do have to remain cautious, particularly if you're in a risk group. Mm. Uh, and people know if they're in a risk group, I take it. <laughs> they should. I mean, they're either yeah. vaccinated they're over 65 or they have an underlying medical condition. Mm. Or haven't been vaccinated. That's a fairly risky yeah, position yeah, to be yeah, in. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. There's still yeah. a substantial proportion of people out there. I come across them every single day in the practice who are not vaccinated, who do not wish to be vaccinated. Um, the only, I suppose, um, other thing that's on the horizon now is there is a new fifth vaccine, Novavax, which, you know, has an older type of technology of vaccine that we're used to, like as reading it's kind of the same type of technology that's in hepatitis B and pertussis and whatnot, but older vaccines that we're used to. And perhaps the fears that people might have had on this, you know, the newer types of technology, the mRNA, mightn't pertain to this new vaccine. And perhaps mm. when it becomes more vi- widely available, people might avail of it if they are still okay. unvaccinated. And is uh, there a sense that it's no longer needed? People who had been vaccinated aren't going for their boosters or aren't bringing their children for vaccines? <laughs> I think children kind of a different sort of topic. To, um, we are seeing a bit fairly healthy uptake in the boosters. Um, we've been running booster clinics since well before Christmas. And we've had a you know a pretty steady uptake of the booster vaccine, and people are happy enough to get it. Children kind of different. Um, parents, I think, are naturally a little bit reluctant to give children a vaccine that maybe they're kind of worried about hasn't been tested long term in children, etc. And I can kind of understand those fears. Plus, they're saying, well, children aren't going to be badly affected anyway; they're not going to get severe disease. So it is, you know a bit of a problem for parents, all right, and that probably explains there's quite low uptake in children. Right, uh, and for people uh, who are in uh, one of uh, those groups who are at risk uh, of severe disease if they catch COVID, uh, should they continue to separate? I mean, it's very difficult. I'd say there's difficult conversations, particularly in households uh, where people have adult children. Yeah, I mean, if you're in a risk group and you have adult children who want to be 
out and socialising and, you know, um, and, and living their lives as normal, as Tony Holland says, yeah, it, it is difficult if they've got, say, an older parent or a parent with a, a you know, a, an underlying medical condition living at home. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be tricky for sure, you know, and there's no real easy answer, um, you know, to that issue, you know, the whole point about, I suppose, about lifting the restrictions is at some point we've got to get back to living lives as normally as we can. Mm. And now that the population is pretty much all vaccinated and we have a less severe variant on the go, now seem to be as good a time as any kind of to get back to normal living. But um, yeah. Uh, As yeah. the CMO was saying there, it has uh, severe mental health consequences and I suppose yeah. uh, to some degree it's the greater of uh, the two evils. Uh, so uh, yeah. if you have been hesitant, you'd be advising people uh, if uh, they're relatively young, fit and healthy, aren't it, uh, uh, in one of those risk groups with an underlying illness to get back to normal, uh, but to continue to be cautious, I take it. Yes. Um, and, you know, an antigen testing, you know, it's no harm to do the old bit of antigen testing. You know, if you're if you're planning on a, on a trip away, if you're coming back from a trip away, if you're going out socialising maybe in the next few days, um, you know, do an antigen test just to check to be sure that you aren't positive and, you know, spreading the virus around. So I think the antigen testing is a good idea to keep that in and doing it reasonably regularly. Okay, and it looks uh, as though uh, the children uh, will uh, be no longer required to to wear masks uh, in the near future, it seems, uh, and will continue to uh, move forward and upwards and uh, keep reopening. Yes, I think that seems to be on the cards for children, all right, and mask wearing has been a bit of an issue. Um, but I was just reading there that, you know, there's lots of innovations that have happened in schools that will probably be kept on uh, in terms of like things like staggered breaks and, um, you know, um, uh, I think children have a, now a, a classroom that they stay in themselves and the teacher moves as opposed to the children all moving um, and, you know, with remote learning for people who have to stay at home and remote parent-teacher meetings. These are all kind of good things that have come out of COVID and they'll likely be kept. Okay. Dr. Scully, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Dr. Mary Scully, a GP with uh, the Abbey House Medical Centre in Nabin. And uh, I think uh, we might hear more uh, from Neffet later in uh, the programme this morning and some of the things they had to say to that health committee yesterday. But speaking of health and speaking of hospitals, let's go back to the A&D in Our Ladies in Nabin. Mary says we can't afford for it to close because the Lourdes won't be able to deal with the extra amount of patients that hasn't got the capacity uh, and she says the Lourdes is already stretched to capacity and struggling to cope. She was there herself recently with a relative and the place was swamped. Staff were doing a brilliant job in horrible working conditions but if it was to become the sole A&D for the region there is no doubt it would be a disaster zone. Uh, another call from a listener who was in touch on WhatsApp to say that they attended the minor injuries unit in Dundalk the other day as they'd heard their back. They were handed a leaflet detailing what is or isn't treated in the MIU. Then they were told to go to Drogheda. Uh, they went to Drogheda, waited eight hours for treatment and in the end they left without being seen. Oh God, it's a ridiculous situation. Hope your back is all right. 
Uh, Rose says we have the best hospital in the country in Our Ladies in Navan. The A and D there saved my life. I was taken ill so suddenly. There's no way I would have survived being rushed to Drogheda for treatment. There are hundreds more stories like mine. We cannot let the emergency department close under any circumstances, Rose. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us today, Rose. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you know, the Oireachtas Committee on Social Protection has recommended uh, that retirement age would remain at 66 and you would qualify for the state pension. But that's not where the story ends. There is much more to this and it's a decision that will be made by government. The government says that it'll be making that decision hopefully towards the end of March. So the debate continues. The Taoiseach speaking about this in the Dáil yesterday, he said that he has an open mind on what the Oireachtas Committee has said, uh, on what uh, the Pensions Commission has said, and he'll also be hearing from uh, the body on taxation because uh, there's a lot to take into account before the government does make its decision, one that hasn't been made yet. We're living longer, it's a good thing. Uh, the, in the last 50 years, the transformation of health has been extraordinary in that sense. Uh, that lifespan, I think, in 100 years has increased by 25 years in this country, uh, which is quite a dramatic transformation from when the state was founded. Um, and in the last 20 years in particular, survival rates from heart disease, survival rates from cancer, from stroke, have been dramatically transformed. Uh, now, that's a good story, that we're living longer, and but then it clearly has implications for pensions and for how we sustain society with um, longer lives, Thanks be to God, and, 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 and um, uh, greater access to health care and interventions and so on. So that's the work of the, 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 the Pensions Commission that was established. And then the Cabinet Committee referred it to the Oireachtas, which was what was agreed, um, and the Oireachtas has now considered it and have made its report. There is the Commission on Taxation and Welfare, which we want to integrate, if you like, not in, but in terms of the findings of the Pension Commission, that its work would be examined also by the pension and uh, sorry by the, the taxation and, and um Welfare Commission because it's all interrelated. That's the Taoiseach Martin, but the question remains as well. What do you do when you've nearly twice as many pensioners and half the amount of workers funding their pensions? Well, there's many ways to approach it. Age Action Ireland agrees with the approach that has been recommended by the Oireachtas Committee. Let's speak to Nat O'Connor, who's a Senior Public Affairs and Policy Specialist. Good morning to you, Nat, and thanks for joining us because uh, the Pensions Commission was... Uh, suggesting uh, that the pension age would uh, rise, first of all, to 67 by 2031 and then 68 by 2039. Uh, But you're saying that that would only cover 16% of the cost, given the change in demographics. Yes, when you look at the figures that the Pensions Commission itself published, um, only 16% of the cost, as you say, would be met by changing the pension age, which means 84% of the cost would have to be met by increasing taxes or else increasing social insurance. I mean, the only other thing you could do is slash the value of the pension, but all the parties have said, you know, they will maintain the value of the state pension. So it is a big challenge in terms of how we pay for this, but there's good news too, in the sense that, you know, we are paying one of the least smallest amounts towards uh, our older population compared to our other European countries because we have still a relatively young demographic in Ireland. Mm. So that's changing and we have to modify our tax system to, to meet that change. But it's certainly something that can be achieved. 
And part of the way it can be achieved, of course, is that people are choosing to work longer. Um, so some people are choosing to work into their late 60s or 70s, and that choice should be supported when it is a choice. But uh, at the moment, one of the barriers is many people have a, a clause in their contract that says on their 65th birthday, they're forced to give up their job. And so that's actually, I think, mm-hmm. one of the most important uh, findings that's come out of this, this issue of forcing people to retire who don't want to and who are you know, fit and well and capable of continuing in, in their work. Uh, because, of course, the more people we can keep in work, that's the more economic activity, which will help us mm. ultimately to pay for the state pension. And the government uh, agrees with that position. I think uh, it's more or less expected that that will be adopted, that you'll be able to stay in work if you're fit and capable and wish to do so. Uh, but if you wish to retire, it can be uh, quite problematic for the exchequer. There was a time when you were expected to be dead before you qualified for the pension uh, and then uh, it, it improved to maybe living for a couple of years uh, as a pensioner. Now you're probably going to be 15 years a pensioner. That could go to 20, 25 years and so on. You could be uh, longer living as a pensioner than you uh, spent working. It, it, I mean, it is, as the teacher said, a good news story. Many of us are living longer, living healthier, which is good. Uh, at the age of 65 now, you can uh, the average person can look forward to 18 or 20 years uh, of life. And that certainly means uh, 17 or 19 years in the state pension, because you get that at age 66. Um, that is affordable in the sense that the, the structure of the Irish state pension is a basic payment, which is meant to be adequate to meet your basic needs, but it's, it's, it's capped. Mm. So unlike other European jurisdictions where you'd get a state pension which was linked to your previous earnings, which could be much higher because you pay more social insurance. We have a, a solid, if you like, foundation that everybody gets, kind of a basic payment for all, which is a much more affordable structure mm. um, to, to pay for. What about incremental increases over the years if we're going to be pensioners for so much of our, our lives? Uh, as you say, you're entitled to the state pension now from 66, uh, but you're entitled uh, to retire at 65 and uh, this Irish solution to an Irish problem. You won't be expected to look for work, uh, but uh, you will be entitled to to welfare and you'll get uh, the equivalent of the dole or job seekers at 203. Uh, Would it be an idea that you would move that to maybe 64, uh, the old pension age, uh, and that it would be expanded out in the other direction as well, maybe up to 68 or something like that? Well, I think the the reason why we have what's now called the benefit payment for 65-year-olds is the mandatory retirement. People are being forced to give up their jobs a year before they've any entitlement to the state pension. And for a few years there, people were being forced to go into job seekers and to write CVs and explain why they were looking for work. And this was really unfair to people who might have been in the same job for 20 or 30 years who were forced to retire and then were forced to go through this pantomime of looking for work. Because unfortunately, there there is ageism in the labour market. We know the people in their late 50s find it very difficult to get jobs. Uh, And so expecting Mm. people in their late 60s to do the same is just unrealistic. Um, So we do have to tackle uh, a culture which doesn't employ older people. So that's that's certainly one part of the, the puzzle, if you like, that has to be worked out. Mm, but uh, could there be a, a lower uh, pension rate for younger pensioners? Uh, would that be a way of saving on the bill and making the overall bill more affordable? I think, well, you're, you're into then quoting the value of the pension and the, 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 the risk with that is you're leaving people in poverty. Uh, at the moment, the pension, you know, is quite good in Ireland. Mm. There are still people who are struggling to make ends meet. And we would argue that there needs to be more analysis done of those who are, you know, 
worst off under the pension system. But we can certainly look at nearby jurisdictions and say, well, we're doing a better job than some other places. So, yeah. And of course, that money gets spent. That's well, the other thing. If oh, you, absolutely. If you, yeah. Yeah. If, you, if, you, if you give people mm. insufficient money, they simply will spend less. So you mm. get less economic activity. But I, I take it most people would hope to retire more with more than uh, just uh, the state pension and that they would have, have savings. Uh, if uh, you ask uh, for uh, the cost of uh, this uh, to be paid uh, through exit taxes, whether that's PRSI or income tax or employer's PRSI, uh, people are going to end up paying more over their working life and they may not have any savings left when they retire. Well, again, that's that's something we can look at the data. I mean, we know that obviously there is a big disparity in terms of who has savings and who doesn't coming into older age. But it's if we're going to solve the issue of uh, a decent income in retirement, one of the things proposed is, for example, a auto enrolment that we'd all automatically in employment be put onto a supplementary pension scheme. Mm. So we're given a way to save to retirement. So that that's that's another way because people. Uh, don't always save for retirement, unfortunately. Uh, people on the lower incomes, uh, anyway, most people on lower incomes don't save for retirement because they can't. They don't have that money. So it is about finding a mechanism that would give people a fair opportunity so that everybody can save. Uh, and yes, if it requires people to pay more taxes, it's not that that money vanishes. It goes in and around the economy and supports further economic activity and that economic activity will come back to people in the form of wages, in the form of higher, uh, you know, value add in the economy, and so on. So it's not mm. a it's not a static situation that you're automatically going to lose. We can all pay into a pension system, uh, whether through taxes or whatever, and all benefit from that in turn in a way that sort of the money keeps circulating. Okay, uh, and. Uh I suppose the bulk of the bill, should that be made up through employers' PRSI and an increase in what the self-employed pay? That's what the, both the Pensions Commission and the Iraqis Commission have concluded. Uh, Irish employers' PRSI is, is among the lowest in Europe. I mean, you could double it, it would still be among the lowest in Europe. So there's a big difference there. Employers currently pay about 11%. They could be paying 20 or 30% in some other European countries. So there's scope to increase employers' PRSI in a sensible way over an extended period of time uh, to not shock the system and uh, to shock employment. And likewise, the self-employed used to get very little for their social insurance, but increasingly you get most of the benefits now of the social insurance system as a self-employed person, but you're still only paying 4%, Mm. whereas 15% is paid for every employee. So a case of bringing that up to a more realistic level. So that has been recommended. we'd have to look at the broader tax and social insurance system to see well, how do we how do we pay for this. But it, it's very much affordable. Um, but as with all political decisions, it's always difficult to increase taxes, particularly for something that you mightn't get immediately, but that you might get some, some way down the road. Mm, yeah, I, I think uh, the message is clear to government, to all politicians uh, for that matter, and uh, maybe they needed to discover it, but people are, are way ahead on this. They want options, don't they? They want to work on if that's what they choose to do. They want to retire if that's what they choose to do. Absolutely. I mean, we, we talk about choice and control in age action, and that's what we want everybody to have. You know, nobody should be in a situation where they're forced to work on into their 70s if they don't want to, because they simply can't afford to live. Uh, so it's about striking the right balance. OK. Nat, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Nat O'Connor, Senior Public Affairs and Policy Specialist with Age Action Ireland. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's go back to the boxing ring. Another sparring round between Michal Martin and Mary Lou MacDonald once again. It was to be a very serious topic. Uh, they were to discuss the problems uh, that young people with scoliosis are facing because uh, they're waiting so long to get their operations uh, that they then become inoperable. But once again, it descended into chaos. They should get on with it and get it done. Tell them that. Yes, so we have. I have told them. So that. you want me to I, go? No, and I tell don't. Them. You want me to no, do your job? What you're I'm doing? Happy to. No, no. I'm and doing again, anyway. I've noticed this is. No, the, no, T-shirt. Sorry, sorry. But sorry, this is re- oh, just a point of order, if I may. This is no, a recurring no, no, feature. No, no, no. At this point, no, no. At this point, there's okay. no point of order, Gurmogis. Sorry no, to interrupt. No, no, the time is up. Thank you. There's an open mic with the deputy. I don't have that facility when other deputies. I don't interrupt when deputies. This is a regular occurrence here. Alaska, I have to bring it to your attention, and it's disrupting the. Deliberately premeditated. The bottom line, what I'm saying to the deputy no, is no, the deputy. No, no, I answer questions. No, 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 and I give you the answer. No, 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 please, please. Thank you. I'm now standing up. I, I'm now standing up. No, we're not. We're not going through this. Sorry, now. We, we do it through the chair. So in, the T-shirt should not be interrupted. Neither should the deputies. So if we do it through the chair, it might be easier. I'll keep a close eye on everything from now on. Okay, we're going to move. Well, on. Call it is, there's a regular, there's an open mic every day now. Thank, no, and, no, T-shirt. Uh, what's your definition? T-shirt. At this point, T-shirt. At this point, it's leaders' questions. The time is now up for Sinn Féin and your. I just want to make. I'm moving on. And they moved on eventually, but I just thought I'd give you another. A taste of how the National Parliament has been run. Let's go to some of the comments. Tommy in Dremain says he was brought into Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital six months ago by ambulance, checked in and everything was okay. Uh, He saw the nurse and then he sat in a chair from 7pm until 6am before he was seen by a doctor. He says, I have to agree with Padre Tobin. The A and D in Navin should not be closed. I was very well looked after in the Lourdes when I was seen, but the system is not working and the Lourdes A and D can't cope with any more patients. The pressure on the poor staff is terrible. Thanks, Tommy. Uh, I'm not sure what you went in with, uh, and I wonder if you could have gone to a different hospital because of the problem that you were suffering with uh, and that you would have been seen there, because this is is what's happening with the hospital at the moment. And it's the argument, uh, it's not the argument I'm making, but it's the argument that's been made uh, about making these changes, that you would go to Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital with a heart attack or something more serious, and that you would go to Dundalk, which is the case with a sprained wrist. Um, and you'll be seeing quicker in both as a result because you're not trying to mix the two patients. So if all of the heart attack patients know, all of the sprained wrists are coming in together, the sprained wrists are left waiting for days because you have to look after people with heart attacks before they die, if you understand. Uh, Bernie has been getting treatment as an outpatient in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan for over 20 years and she says the treatment she's received there has always been second to none and top class. During that time she's battled cancer and had to be treated at other hospitals in the region like the Lourdes and Beaumont in conjunction with Navan and she says there's absolutely a need for all of these hospitals to remain operating with the full provision of their services. They are needed. She doesn't, uh, she does worry about how Padre being is scaremongering a, a little in announcing that Navin is closing when that's not the case. She worries that he'll deter people from seeking treatment there and that would be a huge shame. Thanks uh, indeed uh, for that Bernie. I don't think Patrick Hobin is saying that the hospital is closing in fairness to him. I think what he is saying um, it seems that he, he probably isn't too far wrong is that the emergency department is about to close in the hospital. Right, we were talking about COVID there a little while ago. We'll hear just a, a little bit more about it. I, I, I know that uh, we don't really 
really spend much time talking about COVID, nor should we, because the emergency is over. But for those of you who are a bit worried as to whether it is over, is it safe or whatever, uh, you might get some reassurance listening to the Chief Medical Officer. Uh, here he is once again speaking at that health committee yesterday. Uh, I think in broad terms we're satisfied when we look at, at where the country is in comparison to other countries in terms of vaccination, first of all. And we've seen a very, very high uptake of vaccination. There do remain pockets uh, uh, of, of like under um, uh, uh, a kind of level that we would regard as, ex- as, as acceptable or safe for certain groups. And the HSE has a number of different uh, uh, measures in place to try to raise the vaccine in some of those what might be called hard to reach groups. Uh, and in broad terms, we've seen a very good uptake of the booster programme. There can be a delay in the booster programme, as you'll know, because people have been advised to wait until a period of time after any active infection that they might have had before coming forward for the booster. So for some people, uh, uh, it has been necessitated to delay the dose of their booster vaccine. And that means that we'll continue, if you like, with that booster programme for a period of time and slowly inching up the uh, uptake. But it just gives me the opportunity again to, to stress, I mean, the data that we see gives, gives really, really strong uh, evidence and support to the view that... Uh, the best protection that you can have if you get this infection in preventing that infection becoming a severe infection that might land you in hospital as it were or in turn or in intensive care or might have even more serious effects for you is to be vaccinated and boosted Uh, and when we look at in terms of our intensive care units for example the the significant portion of people who are in intensive care even though that's a, a falling number over the course of the last number of weeks is still made up of people who are not properly and fully vaccinated and boosted So even though the majority of the population, well over 90% of people have had their primary course of vaccination and we've seen a significant uptake uh, of the boosters, we still have some way to go in, in, uh, um, in, 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 if you like, getting the message for people who are not yet vaccinated. Uh, And we're not resting, if you like, uh, complacently on the basis that we're doing much better than many, many other countries in relation to that. Uh, The message still has to go out for each individual. The best thing that you can do for yourself uh, and to protect yourself from, because we've, you can see that we have very, very high levels of infection. And our view is that these high levels of infection are likely to continue uh, for some time. And so the chance of you as you, as you go out and about uh, um, uh, about activities that are now possible that perhaps weren't possible over recent weeks and months, uh, you're going to encounter this virus. And you should assume that you're going to encounter this virus, even if, even if it's inadvertent. And if you're not protected through vaccination and booster, this is still a very serious disease. All right. And there were 12 and a half new cases yesterday. Uh, but what the CMO is saying there is that if you're vaccinated and you're boosted, uh, you can feel safe. Uh, and you can enjoy all of the things we used to enjoy. And that's why they're easing the restrictions. Last night in the Dáil, there were statements about easing COVID restrictions. It is appropriate and timely that it happens at this time that restrictions are being eased and that we all pay a fine and sincere tributes to all of the people who worked in our homes and our hospitals and our front lines and our ambulances and so on. And we also pay tribute to those who, who passed away and who died sadly in this awful tragedy called COVID. And in that, my own brother-in-law passed away about a year ago this week from COVID in the nursing home. In his case, he was very well looked after, as were thousands of other people who died of COVID. But some weren't looked after well at all. And I think that's why we need inquiry, a full and complete inquiry, particularly into the only home in the country, that's the Dalgan House Nursing Home in Dundalk, where the HSE went in and took it over. It is clear to me and to the families concerned that the department is avoiding a decision in relation to this and that we're told by the Taoiseach last week 
that the department is looking at options. Now, I welcome that. And I would ask the minister if she would engage immediately, uh, yourself and indeed your senior minister as well, with the families to bring closure, to bring transparency, to bring accountable. And not like the Sinn Féin spokesman said, he wasn't interested in accountability in this area. Well, I am. And the families of these people who passed in these homes are interested in accountability, and they demand it. And if there were children, if there were 22, 23 children who died in this home that the HSE went in to take it over, would there not be a public inquiry? Would there not be protest marches? Would there not be eruptions in the doll over it? Age counts and old age matters, and people who are dying in nursing homes were not properly looked after, particularly in this particular case. And I know, Minister, I received today word of a home, I understand in County Clare, I only got word this afternoon, where a, a tech, sorry, protected disclosure was made, I think, to your, to your department, if not your office. I'll send you the details later. But it is very concerning. One thing we really need after this awful pandemic is a centre of excellence nationally in terms of training for all staff, be the nursing, healthcare staff, healthcare assistants, nursing home managers and so on. We need the best possible practice internationally to be at our centre of excellence. And we need a proper and appropriate uh, national uh, guidance in terms of uh, medical correctness and proper procedure and proper care. And if we learn, if that comes out of this appalling disaster of COVID, well then at least that, that will be an important uh, change. That's Fergus O'Dowd Fine Gael TD for Louth and Eastmead speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Thanks to Mairead in Drogheda on the phone to us uh, about uh, the closure of uh, the emergency department in Navan and she says, should we not be looking at the bigger picture? Maybe specialist hospitals is the way to go, although nobody can argue that more resources are needed in the A&E departments in all of the hospitals in the country. Thanks uh, for sharing your thoughts with us uh, this morning as well. Uh, Anne in Dundalk says, I think it is particularly tough for people who have underlying conditions at the moment having to live with COVID as everything opens up because COVID is still out there and they're still at risk. On the other hand, the government is saying to live your life. But it's very hard to get rid of the fear and worry that you still might get it. Uh, As you mentioned, Michael, people are still dying from uh, the virus and that is a big concern. Thanks uh, for sharing your thoughts with us uh, this morning as well. And uh, we'll go back to the doll briefly again to hear another local issue uh, that was raised yesterday because we've been hearing about a lot of concerns about CAMS in South Kerry. Uh, here's an issue to do with CAMS in County Louth. Minister Butler, uh, I wanted to raise an issue that uh, of a 15-year-old girl, a child and dog, who tried to commit suicide last week. Uh, this child is crying for help. She contacted the helpline last week and only for the, the cleverness of the operator, she realised there was something going on and she contacted the guards and the guards came to the house and saved the young girl took her to the hospital. This is according to the mother. Uh, Minister, this is not the first time that this child tried to commit suicide. And uh, the the problem there at the moment is uh, nobody seems to want to take responsibility. Uh, When she went to the hospital, the girls took her to the hospital, the hospital then told her that she had no medical condition and the CAMS got involved. And then CAMS got her to see uh, a psychiatrical consultant. They got her to see social workers. She keeps telling them that she wants to commit, commit suicide, but at the same time too, she wants to live. It's the lack of effort here at the moment, Minister. The problem I find here at the moment is, like, nobody knows what the mental issues between Mondays and Fridays from nine to five. 
And when you go looking for any, anything at the weekends, you're just completely wasting your time. You go to the guards, the guards are saying, listen, what can we do? And they, you know, the guards can go to the house, take them to the hospital, the next thing, they will release. So, Minister, what I'm trying to say to you, Minister, is what are we going to do going forward here at the moment, Minister? Like, you know, it's, it's, I don't know what it is at the moment, is because like, parents ring me to have a pollen. You lift the phone out, you ring the hospital, they said it's not them. You ring CAMS, it's not them. You ring Tootsie, you ring, you ring everybody. And honestly, you're just like, a, like a, dog, a dog chasing its tail, going in circles and circles and circles. I mean, sorry, I heard you earlier on uh, speaking there that uh, you spent millions doing this and millions doing that. It's no point spending millions doing this and doing that if we're not actually going to help somebody. So, Minister, I have a 15-year-old child here at the moment that she's looking for help. I contacted Minister Butler's office three or four months ago, the last time she tried to commit suicide, and nothing was done. I had the name. I had the name. I'm going to pass the name of the minister. And I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm just saying, to say, please help this child abroad. All right, uh, that's uh, Independent TD Peter Fitzpatrick. I'm sure, like me, listening uh, to Deputy Fitzpatrick outlining that situation in the doll yesterday, you'd hope uh, that that child is being looked after and we'll ask Peter to update us on the programme in the coming days as to how that 15-year-old is doing. Uh, somebody texting us today saying, my mam recently had a heart attack. Navin Hospital saved her life. Another text then from somebody else. Chris in Navin who says, uh, that a staff member injured in a fire at Navin Hospital was brought to Drogheda Hospital as were some of the minors in- injured in that incident at Tara Mine. So obviously patients are already going elsewhere. Uh, thanks, uh, Chris in Navin. Uh, we're going to just hear one more piece uh, from the doll very quickly. Another local issue that was raised with the Taoiseach in the chamber yesterday. I want to raise the issue of the shocking announcement of 77 job losses at um, Hilton Foods in Drogheda last Friday. Um, the, the news, you know, at any time, but especially coming so soon after Christmas, has been a, dev- as a devastating blow to those 77 workers and their families. Now, I've appealed to the Taunishta to um, engage with the company to explore all avenues um, as a means to protect those jobs, but I'm asking you, Taoiseach, and your government uh, to take a proactive approach here and engage with the company and ensure that every single cost-saving exercise is being explored to try and save those jobs and also for, for you and the government to ensure that all supports and help available to those workers will be followed through on. Yes, uh, I think the, it is devastating news for the workers uh, involved here and the state agencies uh, should do everything they possibly can to support and help uh, either ensure that the company could stay open if that's possible. I don't have the, the, the full background to the decision, the rationale behind the decision. But critically also for the state agencies to engage with the workers, to support the workers in every way possible in terms of um, support, but also in helping them to seek alternative employment if that turns out to be the, the case. But yes, in short. That's the Taoiseach Michal Martin responding to Sinn Féin's Imelda Munster. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you're on medication, did you ever wonder about the medication that you're on uh, and indeed uh, the brand that you've been prescribed or why you've been prescribed that brand? Did you ever think to yourself, does your doctor prescribe that brand to all of his patients or is it the contents uh, and uh, the makeup of the medication uh, under that brand that... Uh, makes them think that that would suit you best? Is there a generic brand uh, that would be cheaper for you or for the state uh, if uh, your medication has been funded by the state? 
or is it that the doctor uh, will get a, a golf weekend away somewhere uh, if he prescribes a, a, enough uh, of uh, these medicines uh, to people. That's a, a question that has long been asked and uh, will be addressed uh, under Sinn Féin's healthcare transparency uh, payments bill. Uh, Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin TD for me. East is on the line and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. I introduced this to the doll yesterday and it's not just doctors, it's all healthcare professionals and healthcare organisations. It's not just golf weekends away for doctors for that matter. There's all sorts of gifts and donations and payment in kind that can be made to people who are working in the medical profession and you want transparency. Yes, Michael, and, and thanks for the opportunity this morning. Um, you, you had the advertisement during the break there for the, the Dope Sick program, and I think lots of people will have seen that and will be familiar with the, the opioid pandemic in the United States and the role of the pharmaceutical company Purdue Pharma in relation to that. And it's, it's you know, a very extreme example of the type of thing we're talking about here Um I think what what we need to recognize is that there is a, a relationship that is necessary between uh, big pharmaceutical companies, uh, medical device companies, and medical practitioners, professionals, and organizations um, that has the potential to create conflicts of interest. Um, there's huge amounts of money uh, at play, um, hugely profitable companies. Um, healthcare is a, a, a huge industry. Um, and what's, uh, uh, you know, those potential conflicts of interest are documented of, of uh, materializing in some instances. Um, can manifest in different ways, like, uh, as you mentioned, prescribing practices, a tendency towards prescribing certain drugs over others, a tendency towards um, uh, using certain devices over others. And that can have uh, real impact in terms of uh, medical outcomes and healthcare outcomes in the first instance, but also, you know, it's, it's in the context of Ireland mm-hmm. and uh, the National Health Service uh, and other uh, publicly funded uh, health systems, um, it has a real impact on, on the public finances and the public person and the, the, the taxpayers' money. So we think it's appropriate that every payment that is made uh, to healthcare professionals and healthcare organizations from pharmaceutical companies and from medical device companies is documented and we know exactly who it's been made uh, to and what it is for. Uh, There there is is a a register apparently, is there? There's a voluntary register at the minute, Michael, um, and it's it's maintained by the pharmaceutical industry itself. Um, uh, the Royal College of Surgeons conducted research in relation to it and identified that, just to give people a sense, yeah. um, over a five-year period, payments in, in, to the value of €163 million Euros were made to, uh, from pharmaceutical companies to healthcare professionals and healthcare organisations. Um, €99 million Euros of that uh, was was aggregated payment that you couldn't really identify who it was made to and what it was for. Um, so there's very significant opportunity to increase the transparency in relation to it. And I, I think, you know, it really is and would be to the benefit of uh, industry, uh, to the benefit of uh, medical practitioners, but in, 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 primarily it would be to the benefit of 
of the public at large because I think it's really important that we recognise that there is an important relationship. It should be a productive uh, and constructive relationship, but there is opportunity for conflict of interest there and we need to do everything we can to ensure that uh, um, our health services and our general public are protected from that. Okay. Uh, While you're with us, uh, can I ask you about Our Lady's Hospital? Uh, You've been invited to to a meeting as we heard earlier in the programme, all of uh, the local TDs have been invited to a meeting with uh, the Minister to discuss the transition to a Model 2 hospital under the smaller hospitals framework. Uh, how do you interpret that? Well, uh, it's, it's as we predicted and we've had th- this discussion uh, on a number of occasions, Michael, the, and you know, there's been different, uh, different things said by different parties, uh, political parties and individual parties in, in Meath in relation to what, what is on the table here. We have been very, very clear in Sinn Féin that uh, by our interpretation of it, it's very clear what's happening here, that there's going to be a downgrading of Navin Hospital, the ICU, critical care and emergency department are set to be closed. And we're being offered a meeting to explain to us why that is going to happen. Um, and uh, I've outlined, and we've been contacted by the, the, the Minister's private secretary, I've outlined I want to meet at the earliest opportunity. I am available to meet. I have a series of questions that need to be answered. Uh, my starting position in relation to this is there can be absolutely no downgrading of the, the critical care services or the ED. And in fact, it's, I want to know what alternatives have been looked at. For example, have they looked at um, increasing capacity at those facilities? That's what I believe need to be done. Those services need to be maintained and enhanced. Have they looked at different rosters? Have they looked at shared sites between the matter and Navin, for example? Why can't consultants uh, swap between both to provide cover? I don't believe that they have done the necessary groundwork. I think they're, they're, they're trying to drive through a fait accompli and I won't stand for it, Sinn Féin won't stand for it and I'm sure the people of Mead won't stand for it. Okay, I think that meeting will take place sometime after the 11th uh, and no doubt we'll have much more talk about it in between and afterwards by the sounds of things. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning, Sinn Féin TD for Mead East, Darren O'Rourke. Michael Reed on LMFM. Tomorrow is World Cancer Day. Ahead of World Cancer Day, the Dáil debated uh, yesterday a Social Democrats' private members' motion which would hope to reduce uh, the cost of care for cancer patients. One of the areas of improvement identified by deputies is hospital car parking charges. These charges are often highlighted as an additional burden to cancer patients and others who must attend hospital frequently. That is why the Programme for Government commits to introducing a cap on the maximum daily charge for car parking for patients and visitors to all public hospitals where possible and introducing flexible passes for patients and their families. And that is when I met with the the local advocate from the Irish Cancer Society. That was something that they had brought up with me in my own experience. It was a burden in my own experience. Even trying to find a space in the local um, hospital car park, um, there should be designated spaces as well left aside so that there's ease of access. We're dealing with people that are very, very frail that need to move from the car to the oncology unit. So not only should it be capped 
but also it should be designated and in a more appropriate setting, not at the back of the car park where somebody has to walk 300 metres and they haven't the strength to do so. Interesting to hear what uh, the Minister had to say. That's Anne Rabbit speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Paul Gordon, Policy and Public Affairs Manager with the Irish Cancer Society on the line with us. I'm sure you were interested to hear that statement. All, all the more interesting uh, to think uh, that Anne Rabbit was speaking on behalf of uh, the Minister for Health, Paul. Uh, indeed, um, it was. I think it was really positive that the, the motion was brought yesterday. Um, I, I think we welcome the fact that the government didn't oppose it. However, um, I don't think sympathy for, for patients is enough. Uh, action is, is really required now. This is an issue that we've been highlighting for, for many, many years. Um, and I suppose we feel that for too long, there's, there's been a punishing burden that the state has placed on, on some cancer patients and that's been ignored um, and I think we're, we're grateful that, that many TDs uh, including ministers gave voice to the fear of, of patients at what can be a very vulnerable si- stage in their lives but I, I suppose now what we're calling for from the government is action on the back of this because we, we heard many many stories brought to life by TDs mm. about their constituents uh, right across the country and the burden that they have to bear uh, and that, that needs to be stopped. And the HSE I thought it was remarkable to hear that the HSE has spent more than 4 million euro on debt collection agencies in the last seven years uh, where debt collectors call to the house of cancer patients looking for payment due to the HSE. Indeed, and that practice seems to have ramped up in recent years. So in in 2019, the last year, we have full figures for um, HSE hospitals spent close to €700,000 um, on, on debt collection agencies and that's an increase of 56% on 2013 so to us that indicates that far from, from rolling back on that practice they're actually pursuing it with more vigour than they have in the past and that's really concerning because we've heard from a lot of patients who may be in a very difficult situation they, they, they're, they're, they're vulnerable emotionally physically also financially um, and to hear from a debt collector either by way of phone call or by 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 way of letters is is really worrying it's it's it could be viewed as threatening um, mm. and it's it's really concerning, especially for people who yeah. are going through a difficult time and, and certainly don't have the wherewithal in some cases to, to deal with something that um, that upsetting. Threatening would sound like a, a good word uh, for how people are being treated. Uh, they owe the money uh, and that's one thing, but they're told if they don't pay back the money that there'll be consequences. Exactly, and a lot of people have been told that it would impact their credit, it might... Um, it might impact their ability to, to get even a mobile phone contract. We heard that in the door yesterday. And that's something that you know can put the fear of God into some people. Um, and it's, it's really worrying that, that the HSE are the ones who are employing agencies to do this. This is the, 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 the administrative body of, of the public health sector in Ireland. Um, and what we're saying is that 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 body should be treating cancer patients with compassion when they're having a very tough time. Look, we hear from patients all the time that their treatment is really good, that their um, that their their doctors, their nurses, other healthcare workers, the porters in the hospital are all wonderful and, and provide really high quality treatment, often in very difficult circumstances. Mm. But for um, I suppose the administrative arm of of the health service to to treat patients in that way is really worrying and something something needs to change we've been highlighting this with hsc for years and to to be honest we we feel a little bit like they they don't take the financial impact of cancer 
as seriously as the other elements of cancer. And for some patients, the worry related to finances can be bigger than the worries related to their health. Okay, Uh, and that works out at about €1,500 a year on average. Uh, At least that's what the doll was told yesterday, that it costs you 15, sorry, a month, uh, €1,500 a month um, just uh, to live with your illness. Yes, it's kind of a double blow, Michael. So um, there's additional expenses of around €750 a month on average, and that's at a time when people are are facing a loss in income of €1,500 a month. So that's really huge burden to bear. It's it's very similar for childhood cancer patients as well, about €15,000 a year in cost to families. And and this this is a a plethora of charges that people don't Mm. really think about before they're diagnosed. It covers appointments, but it also covers things like additional heating costs because you're home more, you feel the cold more when you're going Mm. to treatment, Mm. child care for when you're going to appointments. And the list list is endless of the the new expenses people face at a time when they, they often don't have income coming in. And sometimes we may have single income families where the main earner has has to take time off work or if they're self-employed they just simply can't uh, they, they have to shutter their business mm. and that's that's really a huge impact on families and, and what was raised in the doll yesterday were, were three kind of concrete actions that aren't going to solve the crisis uh, the financial crisis that cancer patients face but will go some way to alleviating that so that will be ending the use of debt collectors abolishing um, an inpatient charge that's, that's levied on patients uh, for cancer treatment sessions if they don't have a medical card or private health insurance and um, and reducing car parking charges at public hospitals. Because mm, you really fall between two stools, don't you? And it's not just with cancer, but I think with a, a lot of health issues, if uh, you're not a medical card patient and you don't have your own private health insurance, uh, it can be quite costly, up to €800 Euro a year. Yeah, and these people can, they, they really find themselves at the, the sharp end of the stick, so to speak. Um, they're, they're often in they're often in a financially vulnerable situation themselves because they might just be outside the income threshold for, for a medical card. Um, they, they, they simply can't afford the, the protection that private health insurance might offer. So as you say, they're, they're really, they fall between two stools um, and for them to, they face charges of up to €800 Euro a year for, for chemotherapy or radiotherapy treatment, which is, is, is not something that's, that's really common in most industrialised countries in their public health systems and it's something that we really think needs to stop. Okay, tomorrow is a day for us all to stop and uh, to think about cancer and uh, an opportunity for you to appeal uh, to people to support the Irish Cancer Society while you're here, Paul. Absolutely um, and World Cancer Day is I suppose, an important day to to reflect both for, for people who maybe have cancer now, have had cancer in the past uh, or who have had loved ones who unfortunately have passed away from cancer um, and we, we hope that people will, will maybe take that, that period of reflection. Um, we're working ourselves with the European Cancer Organisation to, to highlight the challenges that COVID has, paid, has, has, has put on cancer services. We know there's close to a million cancer uh, cases that um, will be either uh, either missed or diagnosed late in, in, in 2020 and 2021 because of um, because of the impact that COVID had, be it through people presenting late to their GPs because they don't they were either scared about going to their GP or they don't want to present an additional burden at a time when when they were dealing with COVID delays um, as a result of, of 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 lockdowns and the impact that it had in public hospitals, um, and that's something that that we really want to highlight and that's something that we'll be 
continuing to work on to, to, to bring to government's attention so the right resources are put in to, to cancer services so that in the future um, that those backlogs are, are, are reduced because we saw in, in 2020 um, there were 14% less cancers diagnosed than, than would have otherwise been predicted so that's something that, that's mm. really chance for us all to reflect on that yeah. Paul Gordon yeah. thank you very much indeed Paul is the policy and public affairs manager with the Irish Cancer Society God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.